I'm Rachel Cassandra, and welcome to Midday Magazine for Thursday, November 17th. A salmon hatchery operator in Prince William Sound has agreed to pay a million-dollar fine for hazardous waste violations. Prince William Sound Aquaculture Corporation pled guilty to illegally burning fuel and waste at its hatcheries, which led to a worker being seriously injured. Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports. Alaska has 25 private nonprofit salmon hatcheries in the state, most of which are in southeast Alaska. Prince William Sound Aquaculture Corporation operates five of them in remote locations, three of which are state-owned. The hatcheries collect salmon eggs from indigenous DNA lines, fertilize and incubate them indoors, rear them outdoors in pens until they're big enough to be released into nearby waterways. What led the U.S. government charging the regional hatchery operator and the million-dollar fine was years of illegally disposing of hazardous waste. The 18-page plea agreement filed November 9th focuses mainly on the Cannery Creek Hatchery, located in a remote inlet approximately 40 miles east of Whittier. Cannery Creek Hatchery violated federal environmental laws on several occasions spanning nearly a decade, according to the plea agreement. In 2013, there was a 400-gallon diesel spill, which resulted in the state suing the corporation and a few hatchery employees. That resulted in a $55,000 fine from state environmental monitors. The operator was also required to hire a consulting firm to create an environmental compliance plan for all five of its hatcheries. The consulting firm noted that the Cannery Creek Hatchery had no formal waste management plan. It was storing new and used oil products in various locations without appropriate containment, and it was burning solid waste in an open pit. Five years later, in 2018, one of the hatchery's workers was seriously injured while tending to a burning drum with leftover jet fuel in it. He was medevaced out for care. Later, when the Federal Environmental Protection Agency investigated the site, the agency found that the hatchery was still burning drums of fuel. Other hatcheries were mentioned in the plea agreement, which states the disposal of drums containing used oil was a long-standing issue at the hatcheries. The Prince William Sound Aquaculture Corporation eventually hired a contractor to remove several tons of hazardous waste from its hatcheries, according to the plea agreement. In addition to the million-dollar fine, the corporation has agreed to five years of probation, during which time they'll follow an environmental compliance plan. Jeffrey Robinson, an attorney who is representing the hatcheries, said he could not comment on the case until it concludes. A spokesperson for the U.S. Attorney's Office said the sentencing is expected in about three months, but declined further comment. The salmon produced in the Prince William Sound hatcheries make up about 45% of the harvest value in the region, or about $50 million a year. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. The fastest job growth in Alaska over the next 10 years will be in agriculture, but if you're thinking farmers and cows, think again. The Alaska Department of Labor projects that marijuana cultivation will lead all industries in job growth statewide between now and 2030. The biggest declines in jobs are projected to come from broadcast and print media. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The data are published in the October issue of Trends, the monthly report of the Alaska Department of Labor and Workforce Development. Cannabis cultivation emerged as Alaska's leading high-growth industry for jobs because, unlike every other sector, it did not suffer a setback during the pandemic in 2020. Job growth in marijuana cultivation and production actually increased by 8.2% that year, 
far ahead of the only other sector to remain in positive territory, millwrights, which saw job growth of about 2%. Statistically speaking, marijuana is lumped into the farming, fishing, and forestry category, but state economists say that job growth in this category is driven by marijuana, and its dominant occupations are farm workers and laborers, which represent about 40% of marijuana employment. This is also where almost 80% of the sector's growth is expected to come from in the next 10 years. Typically, healthcare is a strong sector for job growth, and the numbers suggest a post-pandemic rebound may be on its way. 14 of the top 25 fastest growth jobs are in healthcare, with jobs ranging from surgical techs and registered nurses to dietitians and recreational therapists. All those jobs fall below veterinarian, however, which is expected to see 16% more growth in the next decade. The list of occupations expected to decline in Alaska reads a little like a 1990s career aptitude test. Fallers and logging equipment operators are on the decline, as are insurance sales agents, printing press operators, and mechanical drafters. Leading the pack in job declines, however, are broadcast announcers, news analysts, reporters, journalists, and broadcast technicians, which are all expected to see losses around 35% by 2030. Alaska is a relatively small state and a large broadcasting world, however, and that tends to inflate the statistics somewhat. The actual number of broadcast and journalism jobs the state will lose is 36, with a third of that loss occurring during the pandemic. The data don't capture how many people in the arts, design, entertainment, sports, and media category transitioned to freelance work or became self-employed, which is common in this sector. Factoring pandemic job losses into the overall picture for the next 10 years is important to consider. Other jobs in the bottom 25 include bartenders and ushers, lobby attendants, and ticket takers. The discussion in trends points to an apparent contradiction. If we were to look at only 2020 to 2030, these occupations would appear to be among the fastest growing, but they hemorrhaged jobs during the pandemic, making the recovery look like massive growth. From pre-pandemic levels, the decade decline is around 5%. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. And you can find a link to the October issue of Trends on the uh KFSK website, kfsk.org. The Viking Swim Club hosted their annual meet November rain this past weekend. Teams from Craig, Wrangell, Sitka, Ketchikan, and Juneau attended. There were 104 participants and 108 events for all age groups over three days. Head coach Scott Burt says that he and Kayla Wright, the assistant coach, have been working the swimmers very hard this year. KFSK's Avery Herman Sakamoto talked with Bert this week. So my name is Scott Bird. I'm head coach for the Petersburg Vikings Swim Club. And this past weekend we hosted November Rain. It's an annual meet um, where we invite other swim teams from across southeast Alaska. Um, it's the only meet that we host. Um, We do have time trials for our swimmers here, but this is the only meet that we invite other teams from across the state. And we had a great turnout this year. Um, Energy was high. You know, it's a three-day meet. Um, Started Friday afternoon, and we finished Sunday probably at around 3. And I think 
a couple of things to that are noteworthy to me. This is the I'm the beginning of my third year as head coach for for VSC Viking Swim Club. My first year was when COVID was in full swing, and so we had no meets. Um, last year, we had planned on having November rain in November, and we were unable to at the time. So we had to postpone it. We rescheduled it and had November rain in February. So yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. Um, but many teams commit to schedules early on in the season, and even though we rescheduled it, uh, not many. Only June I was able to bring a small contingency of swimmers. Um, so this was a this was a big deal. This was exciting to have that many swimmers here, um, swimming their hearts out, and uh, it went off. I mean, it's great. Coaches were happy. Swimmers were happy. You know, we had a we had a wonderful meet, and you know, hats off to everyone that was involved. Um, it takes an army of volunteers to make this happen, um, and from the timers to the people who run the uh, the computer to the stroke and turn judges and officials, um, these are not paid. They're volunteers, and you know, so we couldn't make it happen without them. And so I'm really appreciative of that. But also a heartfelt thanks to all the friends and family that showed up to cheer these swimmers on. It was an, a very energized and exciting and loud environment. Yeah, my ears are still ringing from everything that happened. Um, the swimmers for VSC swam great. Um, we had a lot of personal bests, you know. And what's encouraging is you, you, know, you always want your swimmers to swim faster. And if they're not going to swim faster, I always tell them, you know, it's not always about times. Just do your best. And we're fairly early in our season. And some of the times that these swimmers were trying to beat were from the end of last season when they were really, you know, had been practicing and working hard for months. Um, so, you know, you always go into these meets with a bit of, of you don't really know what to expect, you know. I think that it, that has paid off. These kids really, really swam well. We had one young swimmer, Tori Miller, who broke one of our club records. Yeah, and that was really exciting. It was a record that was uh, from 2002, so it's a 20-year-old record in the 50 butterfly. So really proud of her. And it was uh, especially impactful because it was done here in her home pool. You know, that was really exciting. That was Coach Scott Burt talking with KFSK's Avery Herman Sakamoto about the Viking Swim Club Regional Meet. In Southeast Alaska Monday, a number of Native organizations celebrated Walter Soboloff Day. The Glinkit leader was born on November 14, 1908, and was the first Alaska Native to be ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church. He lived to be 102 Sea Alaska Heritage Institute observed his birthday with a panel discussion in Juneau about the Presbyterian Church's decision to close Sobolov's church in 1963. After the church was torn down, services moved to Northern Light United Presbyterian Church, which had a mostly white congregation. Sobolev, who gave sermons in his native language, grieved quietly and never spoke out against the church. Many of his parishioners harbored a spiritual wound that never healed. Earlier this year, the Native Ministries Committee from Northern Light successfully petitioned National Presbyterian leaders to make a formal apology. But Myra Munson, an attorney who worked with the group, fought for more. If all we do 
is apologize again. There have been apologies from the Presbyterian Church. There were apologies from the Methodist Church. There are apologies from everybody for this and that that have been done and repudiation of other bad policies. But if that's all it is, does it mean anything? In a recent agreement, the church will receive a million dollars over the coming years to make reparations, money that will be spent to promote healing and education about the harm racism causes. Rosita Worrell, president of the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, thanked the Native Ministries Committee for their work. I know that this story, the story of Dr. Sobolov, uh, the things that happened to him, and what you have done, you know, to rectify those wrongs will be living on through our children as they learn about our history. As part of the reparations, the church has also been renamed Kune Hidi, which means House of Healing. Three cruise ships that visited southeast Alaska this summer received awards for reporting whale sightings as part of a federal program. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration recognized the top three contributors to the effort, the Norwegian Encore, the Cunard ship Queen Elizabeth, and Holland's, um, Holland America's New Amsterdam. More than 900 whale sightings were reported by Alaska Cruise Lines this year. The Encore was responsible for nearly a third of them. The Norwegian Cruise Line vessel reported almost 300 sightings. The Queen Elizabeth submitted just shy of 200 and the New Amsterdam reported 76. The reports were all made through the Whale Alert Alaska program. It's an app that launched in 2012 to help ships avoid whale strikes. NOAA and Glacier Bay National Park expanded it for use in southeast Alaska in 2016. Carly Lowe is one of the NOAA biologists running the program. We have sort of a live um, map that shows where all the whales are, and that way people can, you know, look at the map before they take off to see, you know, what the sightings were around their area and hopefully try to avoid some of the whales in, in the area that they're, you know, going through. The app replaces a previous program where cruise line agencies of Alaska would send out maps of recent whale sightings once a week through email. So we're trying to just, you know, really make it as easy as possible for people to use, and that way it's not burdensome and it's just listen to their other programs. Lowe says this was the first year that NOAA gave out awards for the most reports to come from a vessel. We're hoping to continue with that program just some friendly competition. The Encore's first navigation officer also received an award for his specific reports, as did a lookout on board the Queen Elizabeth. And that wraps up the news portion of Midday Magazine. Coming up next, local and marine weather.